The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Gentlemen, what's up? How are you? Good to see you, man. See you, bro. <laughs> Always. And Robert, very nice to meet you. It's a pleasure as well. Pull this sucker up right to your face. It moves around. Yeah, it's very... Uh, That's the, cool. The key, yeah, keep it. Try to keep it like a fist from your face. Right. Um, before we... Let's just, let's just get into it. Let's explain, Robert... Why don't you get started with this? Explain how you came to know Robert and what his uh, circumstances were. Yeah. Um, in 2016, 2016, right? Yeah. I was speaking in New Orleans. I was asked to speak at this conference of like hundreds of criminal defense attorneys with Barry Sheck, who founded the Innocence Project. And we were teaching a class, essentially, um, from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And Barry and I were giving a presentation in front of hundreds of lawyers about things that they could do to ensure that during jury selection and a trial that you can expose prosecutorial misconduct, um, how you can make stronger legal pleas to get what we call exculpatory evidence or evidence that would tend to show someone's innocence. So it was an hour long speech and Barry and I were like going in 15 minute blocks. And at some point while we're on the stage and I feel like we're killing it, you know, I'm like feeling myself, like they're <laughs> really loving this stuff. And at some point on stage, uh, Barry goes to me, by the way, you know, we just had an exoneration here in New Orleans and this guy might show up. And he, and I said, when was the exoneration? He said, just a couple of weeks ago. And I said, it's a kind of a tricky thing to put him in a position to come up and speak in front of hundreds of lawyers. And I said, how long was he in for? He said, almost 24 years, 23 years, seven months for a, a vicious rape and murder that he didn't commit. So we're wrapping up our speech and all of a sudden I see this man walk in the room and like a lot of heads turn around because it was at like a big hotel like um, ballroom. And all the heads swung around because the door opened real loud <laughs> and slammed. So everybody is looking at this guy and I see this very well-dressed man. And Barry, you know, says, oh, and, you know, we have a very special treat for you. This man just a few weeks ago um, was walked out of Angola one of the most violent penitentiaries in the country. And I, I feel like, you know, something bad is about to happen because I know what that's like to, um, at least I don't know what it's like, but I know what it's like to see somebody in the throes of just getting out and they're usually shell-shocked in a way that is not conducive to public speaking. So this guy just strides up on the stage, grabs the mic, and gives this this galvanizing speech where, you know, like you could see the jaws dropping open about how important it is to fight while you're in court and to not back down from judges that aren't letting you, you know, protect your client's constitutional rights. And I'm sitting there watching him and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, this, I've never seen anything like this is special. So... Rob, Robert and I met right there on the stage, and uh, 
we got to talking and then we went across the street to a bar and we had a more than a few cocktails and he he told me his whole story um about the crime about this awful you know set of prosecutors and detectives that covered up evidence and lied and were responsible for his incarceration and i've said this to you before these you know if you've never been in the presence of an exoneree you don't really know um you know really the true strength and like the triumph of the human spirit in a way that is very hard to describe so you know 25 minutes in we're at a very crowded bar in the french quarter and i'm weeping (laughs) (laughs) so this woman is sitting at the bar and robert puts his arm on me he's just like it's all right i'm gonna be all right and we had like one of those conversations where it was like uh we just connected in a way that was um you know really extraordinary and then um I went on to help represent him in his his civil rights case, and um, but that's how we met. I don't want to give away too much of his story because I'd rather him tell it. But that's how we met, and then you know have kept in close contact over the last you know five years or so. And um, I say this with full confidence that none of it is hyperbole. You're in the presence of a miracle. I mean, this what this man was able to endure, overcome, um, and accomplish since he's been out is nothing short of mind blowing. I mean, he's a, a, a force of nature, and it's just a, such a an honor to bring him here. How long have you been out, Robert? Mm. Uh, f- five years or so. And has it? What What has the transition been like from the first day you're out? to to now is it uh have you like gradually become accustomed to this idea that they're not going to drag you back in have you have you like is as freedom changed like the way it feels is it like normal now um maybe after after uh my charge was dismissed i was released in 2015 but uh maybe two years after that uh being threatened for a retry. After that was over, when Charles was actually dismissed on my 44th birthday, right? Uh, which a day I'll never forget. Uh, I started feeling freedom from there, in a sense, because I wasn't tied into anything no more, in the sense of. You didn't have it hovering. Right. And so, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a transition from the first day I got out until. Even to now, a lot of things I'm getting accustomed to. Uh, and just the way the world is, right? You know, inside of inside of prison, um, you live under uh, a set of rules and guidelines, administratively and as a, a, a prisoner, right? They got their own set of rules, you know. Uh, and, and one of the things is about respect. Respect is huge and... Uh, this having that empathy for other other people that's in the situation that you are in, right? So immediately when I got out, uh, maybe about the first week I was I was out. I'm gonna tell you one of the transitional phases. Uh, out with a friend uh, in the Riverwalk, like near the French Quarters <clears throat> in New Orleans. And man, I was just was talking, and um, 
I seen the old lady crossing the streets. Uh, old white lady on the on the one of those canes, like the full the the full stand canes. Yeah. And, like and, a walker. Yeah, like a walker, right? Mm. And it's like she's crossing the streets, but these cars kind of like moving kind of fast, and a lot of traffic, you know, and people blowing horns and different things of that nature. Uh, and I'm like looking at everybody, like, ain't nobody gonna help this old lady. Like she, she might get hit, you know, a car might hit her, right? So I'm uh, talking to my friend, but I'm constantly paying attention to what's going on, right? Paying attention to my surroundings. So I said, man, what the hell? I went and helped her, made sure that she crossed the street safely. And when I got back to the other side, people were, like, clapping and patting me on my back. I'm like, this is a fucked up world. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) you're giving me accolades. We're doing a normal human thing. Right. Yeah, that you're supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that I I was in for a hell of a transition. Uh, Just to to see that people didn't have uh, respect for one another. I mean, this... Passing my people and just saying, excuse me, right? Open the door for women and older people and children. Shit like that. Like, So you know. are you saying that there's more of that in prison? Well, in, in prison it's just like, it's, it's a lot of respect. and Because when you don't respect nobody, I mean, that's consequences for it, right? Right. Maybe not those particular instances, but just that level and that mindset of having that level of respect, mm. you know? Uh, if you're in your own space, a guy not going to invade your space, and if he invades space, that's consequences for that, right? So just having that level of respect. So you know what I say is, coming in a society that and making that transition was it was difficult in that aspect, amongst a lot of other things. So you were 20 years old when they arrested you. 19. 19, and. Could you explain the the circumstances, like what happened, how you found out about it? How I found out about how do you find out you were being accused of something that you didn't do? Uh, well, actually, they uh, it came to my mom's house, uh, knocking on the door, banging on the door. Um, the police raided the house, uh, pulled out guns, and saying they were looking for uh, me for some crimes, uh, and I was like, I mean, knowing I commit no crimes, right? So, like... <laughs> you had never been in trouble before that? Little shit? Yeah, just normal things that people growing up in private, they get in trouble for, you right. know? Uh, uh, selling drugs, or just being, mm-hmm. basically being a, a, a product of your environment, and the things that you see and participate in, but not no shit like they was trying to um, say I was uh, involved in like murder, uh, robberies, rape. I'm like, what the hell? And so now I was thinking in more terms of, of okay, well I'm just gonna go to the station. You know, but and I and I told my my mom I can still remember, I remember this. Uh, I said I'll be back, I'll be right back, cause I know I ain't do shit, right? Right. So I left out the house and went down to the station when they went to telling me about this. Uh, murder with child with these armed robbers and rape them like man y'all people lost your mind like so me understanding the system as from what I was I mean for what was known innocent people wasn't it wasn't prevalent during that time in 1992 it wasn't a, a, a huge thing where innocent people 
will get arrested for crimes and get convicted, right? So I'm thinking that well, when people commit crime, they get arrested, they go to jail. That's the standard norm, right? So I was under that uh, uh, presumption of assuming that, well, eventually they'll get their shit right once they go to talking to folks and right, right. different things of that nature. And so, uh, yeah, it was mind-blowing just to be knowing I was charged with aggravated rape, uh, uh, first-degree murder at the time, and a whole slew of armed robberies, you know? And what did they try to say they had on you as far as evidence? Well, a, a lot of that stuff kind of came out uh, in the proceedings thereafter. They just, I mean, initially during the, during the arrest, they don't really tell you all that. You don't find these things out until you after, eventually you're arrested. And uh, I mean, because it was a, it was a, uh, a British tourist that was involved in the, I mean, that was a, a part of the crime. So shit made national news. So I was on television like. Um, Internationally, this case was like really huge because of publicity. So, I mean, half of the stuff technically, I would charge. Well, I didn't even understand as to what, what was the evidence, and I mean, what they had against me or what have you, until I started going through the uh, the court proceedings. And you know, they they say they had eyewitnesses, then they didn't, and then they say they didn't have eyewitnesses. Uh, so in the Orleans Parish Jail, right, I stayed in the Orleans Parish Jail four years, four years before I was actually convicted. And that because the state's case had a lot of uh, difficulties in as it relates to the identification procedures that happened. And eventually I, I was end up convicted because a lot of things was withheld that uh, showed that someone else actually committed the crime. Committed the crime, and they knew about this evidence that would have exonerated you. They knew about it. These motherfuckers. That that to me is the craziest thing when I hear about that over and over and over again. Josh has brought this up. I don't know to me more than a dozen times. Horrific cases where the prosecutors absolutely knew that they were convicting an innocent person. Right. They knew that there was evidence. They, w they withheld that evidence. Right. How the fuck do those people not wind up going to jail? That, to me, wanting to put someone in jail for a crime that they're innocent of is almost as horrific as the crime you're charging the person with because you're ruining a life and you know better. You know better. Willfully holding back innocent people's evidence that would exonerate them that's insanity I, you know I, robert and i probably have <clears throat> different perspectives on this i went into this thinking and when i say this i mean this work i went into this thinking these were just a bunch of m malicious people that you know were out to frame young people of color um I don't think that that's always the case. I think subconsciously it's there. I think that they become so focused on winning and believing their own hunches, and that's what happened in Robert's case, um, that they go down a path. And you'll never really know what their motivation is unless you could climb into their mind and they tell you. But I know in Robert's case, because I know the case really well, that they, is, they 
took the I mean I want you to explain it but they took the word of people that claimed they could identify him they knew and had it's not that they had reason to believe they knew that someone else committed this crime um, and they had an obligation to turn that evidence over to Robert and his attorneys and they affirmatively didn't so you know what their motivation was is for people to figure out on their own but um, it's infuriating, and I think that the only answer, and we could talk about this probably later, about the reform work that Robert's doing, that we're doing, the only answer is that we need to change laws to make people more accountable as law enforcement officers and prosecutors to make sure that um, they can't just do this shit with impunity. Well, this should be a crime. It should be a crime of the highest order. If you want to imprison someone for something that you absolutely know they didn't commit, if you have the evidence that shows that that person's innocent and you withhold that evidence and still prosecute and convict them, that should be a horrific crime. You should never work in the criminal justice system again, and you should lose your freedom. If anything will motivate you, motivate your, your listeners to, to believe what you're saying and to feel the same way, I can think of no other way than to take you through this man's journey, because even over dinner last night, you know, I, I, you know, I had to like turn away and not get emotional because I don't know how he did it. I don't know how these people can have the where the the mental stability and find the wherewithal to not only survive in prison, but to play such a, a instrumental role in their own release. Um, he's the smartest lawyer in the room. <laughs> so, you know, why don't you tell Joe about how that how you even became a suspect and what some of the initial problems were with the case? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> how I became initial suspect is they had a, a well, allegedly they had a, a false uh, tip. It was a false tip that led uh the police uh to arrest me uh for these particular crimes saying that they knew that i was involved in these crimes or what have you um, who gave them the false tip uh it was anonymous anonymous was it someone that had a grudge against you do you think is it was it someone that was just trying to throw themselves off the case i really don't know that you don't know i really don't know it, okay. i don't know how okay. that happened it, uh <clears throat> But uh, someone, someone actually did it, right? Yeah. And that is how easy someone's life can get thrown away to go to show you how things uh, can take a different turn. Um, so, you know, and a lot of these things, it didn't. And, and one way you look at it a lot of times that, uh, I mean, growing up in distressed neighborhoods and growing up in poor neighborhoods, you're young, you're black. Uh, uh, a crime happened to a, a tourist, a white tourist. Uh, the uh, a lot of people is looking at the city because tourist tourism. As I learned, I didn't know these things now, but as I learned while I was incarcerated, you know, tourism is a big attraction for the city of New Orleans. There was a British tourist and a lot of news covered nationally. And like this shit got to get done. Somebody got to go to jail for this. Right. Right. This something have to happen, and so. You know, when you take all those things into a account and somebody allegedly called and said that I had something to do with the crime, I get arrested. Uh, I mean, when I got arrested, as I said, you know, I grew up 
and I and, and I can go off into this. You know, I, I grew up in, a, in in poor neighbors and poor environments. Uh, uh, I come from a single parent household. I was the the elder of, of of five other siblings, which is one is deceased now. Uh, because I I essentially became a product of my environment. Um, in the sense of maybe, you know, peddling drugs and doing things that normal teens do in those kind of environments. Um, eventually, I, I dropped out of school. Um, and maybe a few years after that, I ended up getting arrested for these crimes, right? So when I went to prison, went to the jail first and then eventually going to prison, only thing I was equipped with, with a lot of courage, street common sense, and that's it. That's it. Uh, I mean, I can read to the extent to get myself by, but I wasn't an excellent reader, right? Right. Uh, I just had a lot of common sense and a lot of courage. So, uh, I mean, going through that process was 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 horrible. It was horrific, and in, in uh, <laughs> it was it was really horrific in a sense because, in more terms of, I went through that system, and I tell folks all the time, it's like. Uh, standing before a system, and they speak in a whole nother language to me. Mm, legalese, jargon. Yeah, the legal jargon yeah. and terminologies that totally didn't understand. Didn't understand that word. Period. Right. Mm. So going from that and being in the in the parish prison, have to use uh, my courage and my strength. From growing up in poor environments to survive inside this institution uh, or jail, uh, was, it was horrific. I mean, did you still have hope that they were going to figure out that you were innocent because you were innocent? Right. I, I, I still had a lot of hope because I didn't know, any, as I said, innocent people wasn't, until my knowledge, until the world knowledge uh, in 1992, it wasn't really nothing prevalent. That innocent people get in caught. I mean, uh, get found guilty, right? Right. So I still had like a smidgen of hope, even in the parish. Like they're gonna eventually get this shit right, or if I go to trial, nobody gonna find me guilty because I know I'm innocent. Just living off, just holding on to that, right? But as the time went on, me being in the parish, I started seeing guys that was getting convicted, and they actually were saying that they was innocent. I'm like, he lying. Cause right. that shit don't happen, right? <laughs> you must be lying, right? That shit don't happen. I'm like, and God was more like convincing. I'm like, okay, maybe that happened, but ain't gonna happen to me, right? So when the shit happened to me, I'm like, so it was like mind blogging to a sense. Like, man, it was crazy. Robert, did they ass- they assigned um, a, a a defense attorney for you, right? A public defender. No, I, I had uh, yes and no, because what, what happened was I hired a guy, but my family was poor. They couldn't really afford him, and I think he was appointed at some level of the case, right? Uh, and, yeah, so, and and, and that, that that was the gist of that. But, man, it's, it, it was so much stacks against me, though, to the extent of, man, like, I, I need a dream team. Yeah. You needed well, a, a serious group of actual, actual excellent 
defenders Why? who could go through all this information and, and with a lot of work right. find out that you were innocent. But did you get, you got a public defender eventually? No, he was a private attorney. So you had this private attorney. Right. When you had conversations with him initially and you were trying to explain that you had nothing to do with this, what was his initial reaction and what was his plan? Like what? How did he re, did he try to reassure you? What was his conversations with you like? Well, a lot of his conversation was that um, I think I think we can beat this. I think we can beat this. Predicated on if I get this information, if I get this, if I get this, and I was like, okay, if you can get this, then you know. What was the information they wanted to get? You know, different uh, reports, supplement reports, and different things of that, that he kept on fighting for that the the courts were rejecting him on. Uh, he was like, man, I need that supplement report. I need to get this report. And it's 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 weird because a lot of the things that he, he was requesting for, eventually years later, a lot of years later after I was found guilty, me litigating my own case, uh, and and working with the Innocent Project of New Orleans, where they were, was able to provide the resources to investigators, some of these same documents that this guy was looking for were some of the documents that has uh, uh, exculpatory evidence withheld inside these documents uh, and other documents as well, but for the most part. So I, I understood why he was looking for those things. But he's always telling me, like, man, we can do this and we maybe can uh, do this if if this happened and this happened. But a lot of things never happened. Did you learn law when you were in prison? Yeah. Uh, and I can tell you about that. Uh, that was a long journey. And it was a long and it was a fast journey because I was left with no other options. Uh, as I said, after being convicted, um, I was maybe about 22 years old, and I went to Angola. Um, when I first went there, uh, I, I look at the lot of, a lot of the guys who was already there. When I got there, they had guys who was down like 25, 30 years, 25, 40 years. You know, I'm like, what? You been locked up that long? And... I'm a person that I observe a lot and, you know, I think a lot, right? Uh, and I strategize a lot. So when I actually just look at a lot of these guys, I was talking to a lot of them, I know I noticed that uh, these guys was uneducated. They didn't know the law. And they didn't have a lot of uh, outside resources and connection with their families and, and other people, you know? So I kind of, like, picked those three things out of, like, what the hell? Uh, and they explained to me why those things happen. They've been there so long, they lose, you know, they get out of touch with a lot of their family members and different things of that nature. And they don't worry about educating themselves because they're, so, they're worried about how they had to defend themselves all those years. So all those things kind of like put them in that situation. A lot, and a lot of them, not all of them, but most of them was, was always angry guys. They was bitter. They was extremely dangerous. Uh, and I kind of like use those guys as a mirror, like, I'm not gonna be like that, right? So I kind of like took the opposite direction. But what happened was very interesting. That actually changed my life. Uh, 
me getting found guilty was like one of the most horrific, uh, traumatizing thing in my entire life, right? That was at that time. But within that same year, um, I lost a, a brother, my younger brother. Um, he was he was he was killed in, in the form of street violence and, and, and what have you, right? Uh, and I sort of like felt, <laughs> and I can laugh about it now, but I used to cry all the time when I talk about it. I can laugh about it now because I, I sort of understand and I was, I'm able to accept it, right? Uh, but I felt kind of responsible for his death in a sense, even though I was incarcerated and he was, he was free. Uh, but the reason why he was killed, because he was selling drugs, not to justify his means, because that's all he knew because the environment he grew up in. He was selling drugs to raise money, the higher turn to get me out of prison. Oh. And I felt I felt really horrible and bad about that, man, you know. So, you know, I through the through the through months and weeks or what have you, I felt so depressed. Uh actually wanted to kill myself because I, I couldn't even go to the funeral. You know, so all these things I was really I was thinking about committing suicide and everything. But what happened was interestingly what happened was a guy who I met when I first got there, one of the guys who uh, I got very close with in the sense of, because me and them had a, 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 a subject matter that we we can relate to. Uh, when I was seven years old, I lost my father. My father was killed. Um, yeah, my father was killed, but my father was, was a boxer, right? And so after my father was killed, like for maybe a couple of years after his trainers, they wanted to like, man, your daddy was so good, we want to keep this bloodline going. Like, you got to go and try to be a boxer. So they kind of like ushered me in that mode, and I started training. I started understanding dynamics and the concept of, of the basics of boxing. Uh, how old were you? How old I was doing when, that When time? they started training you? Maybe eight. Eight to me about eleven or twelve, something to that in that bracket. It was a couple of years I stayed and going back and forward. Um, was this something you wanted to do? Is this something that you felt like they were just trying to push you into doing? I think they was pushing me towards. It's yeah. nothing that I actually didn't want to do, but that's why I stopped right. doing it. Right. Right. Eventually, I stopped doing it and did something else. Uh, but so me and this guy who I, I, I'm, I'm speaking of had this kind of relationship as it relates to, because he was a boxing trainer inside the institution. And me and them had to have discussion about certain things, about how you train guys. It's like, you know, if you train a guy to be uh, uh, aggressive, in a sense, don't hit him too much with the mid gloves, because you're going to make him a defensive, you know, mm -hmm. and that kind of, just different things like that, right? So we had to have these kind of discussions. And so he was the one that kind of came to my aid when uh, I was going through this dramatic uh, process with my brother being, you know, uh, killed, right? Uh, I was walking in the yard, I was crying one day, and he just walked up to me like, man, what's going on? I'm like, man, I don't really want to talk about it, you know? I'm like, man, just give him my space. He was like, man, no, man, you my friend. I won't, I'm going to help you. He said, let me tell you this, and you might understand this. 
He said that life is life's boxing, right? He said every time life throw a punch at you, you got to throw a counter punch. And he said if you don't throw a counter punch, life will just knock you out just like you can get knocked out in the ring. And I'm like, it ain't dawned on me when he told me. When I went back to my cell, I'm like, you know what? This guy fucking right. You know, I got to fight back. I can't just, you know, uh, just sit back and continue on to blame the system. Oh, dude, the system is at fault. And blame other people for what they ain't doing. I got to fight. And that conversation sparked something in me and actually changed my life. So from there, I enrolled myself in a a literacy program inside the institution. Uh, And... It's funny now when I think about it because they started me out in the third grade. I dropped out in the eighth grade, but they started me out in the third grade in the literacy program, and which I excel. Uh, those programs is extremely fast because I'm like, what the hell, third grade? But I was glad I had to take that route, right? Because I wanted to relearn all those things and freshen myself up. And eventually, I got that to GED school, uh, and at the same time, I was studying the law. Right, because I knew I said, man, my brother was was gone. He technically was my only financial resource that I had, or a chance that I ever had was of getting an attorney. My family couldn't afford it, right? So it, that was led him to what he was doing to try to help me. So I was like, I got to do this shit myself. Ain't no way I'm gonna get experience in the law if I don't know how to, if I don't have no academical skills, right? So I got to master this shit. And they came back to these different things. I'm like, all these guys that been here all this time, they were uneducated. That mean I got to get educated. Uh, they didn't know the law. That mean I got to master this shit, right? And they didn't have no resources. I got to get resources. So that was, that's all I ever focus on. So inside the institution after, you know, I studied the law for, for, for years. And I went in from the Constitution all the way up to... Uh, man, I, I studied everything about the law. To the to the point is, I started taking corresponding courses in various aspects of laws on different branches, criminal, civil. Uh, uh, and I started studying politics. Started studying all this stuff. And one of the things, reason why I didn't want to be the smartest person inside it and go to prison. But I didn't want to be that same 19-year-old kid that stood before the courtroom and they didn't understand shit that was going on in front of me, right? And I wanted to be, I wanted to be educated enough to help myself get out of prison and stay out of prison and change the system. So that's that that was brought on that that level of education. Um and so 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 for many years, um and one of the things I, I maintain a lot of my resources, I get got a lot of resources, is a lot of people used to spend a lot of their money in the commissary, in um, which I used to spend money in the commissary as well. But a lot of my money I used to sacrifice. I told you I'm a very uh, strategic person. I used to invest in 100 stamps a month. And I said if I, and I think stamp was maybe, 25 cents, 20, 29 cents during the time. So it was more than, it was less than $30 a month, right? 
for the for the for the get me a hundred stamps. So if I I say if I can write a hundred people in a month, and if three people respond from the hundred people I wrote and bring me help, that's a that's a third of the investment, right? For me to actually get the mm. help that I need and uh, to get my freedom. And who are you writing to? Everybody. I wrote the president of the United States. I wrote the federal government. I wrote everybody. Then I started talking. Over the period of years, I started talking to certain people, investigators, lawyers. Uh, uh, then when I started hearing about the innocent projects that were surfacing around the country, uh, I started writing them. And eventually, uh, it worked out, all right? Uh, but prior to those folks coming on and bringing uh, the resources to help me. I was litigating my own cases. I was litigating cases for other guys inside the institution. Uh, I had got so good at, at, at litigating to the extent I was winning cases in the, the high state court, the circuit courts. I was getting guys like hearings. Uh, I had an impeccable prison record for as rehabilitate myself. I had completed all the self-help programs. I was in charge of of three of the organizations there that was creating programs for guys. I mean, uh, it was a whole lot of things I was doing. I, I I didn't have, like, ruling fractions for, like, expand from, like, 10 to 15 years, and which is, is, is it's hard to do. What do you I, mean by that, ruling fractions, 10 to 15 years? Well, getting the write-up. What, like, what do you mean? Inside, when you're in prison, it's like a ruling fraction is, like, they got a set of rules, really strict rules, mm-hmm. and... If you violate in any kind of way, they call that a write-up or a rule infraction. Okay. And it's hard to get that inside the institution, Not that, I mean, not to get write-ups, right? Right. Uh, because you got some guards that's got animosity towards you. They don't like you or whatever. They might get you to do something uh, uh, that you don't want to do. So it's it's, it's hard to, to, to balance those things. But I managed to do that, right? And I was getting all these help for these guys, getting reversal for guys, and uh, some guys was getting um, lesser sentencing and getting out of prison. I'm like, I can't help myself. I can't win shit for myself, you know? And I had all the right things. As a matter of fact, some of the very same issues that I eventually got out on when I had the resources, some of the very same issues that I was litigating myself like years before I got out, like, why I couldn't get out then? Well, I just didn't have the resources. So, yeah, that's 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 kind of that's all I explained. You know, um, my level of of educating myself to the extent of of learning all these things, man. You know. You know, I was Joe last night. <clears throat> you know, I know Robert now for five years, and. I almost, I, I told him last night, I was like, I almost feel ashamed to ask you this because I got this reputation as like this real aggressive, hard charging um, attorney when it comes to these innocence cases and that I'll say things that other people may be, you know, a little bit more reluctant to say to a judge and, you know, I'm not the traditional attorney, but I, and I said to Robert last night, you know, but. I don't kid myself that when it comes to toughness, I can't even wrap my head around 
trying to get it in your mind space where you have a ninth grade education, you're put in prison for something you didn't do, and I know myself and know that I would have been a puddle, and I don't know how I would have survived, let alone had the wherewithal to overcome what he overcame. So he was telling me a story last night about how, because I said, I know Angola is one of the most dangerous penitentiaries in the country. Um, It's a very violent place full of very violent people. Um, It has a long, sordid past of not having oversight. Um, There's murders. There's everything that you think about when you think of nightmares in a penitentiary happens there, maybe twofold. That's a guess, but it's a very violent place, suffice to say. So I said, well, how how did you navigate that? Um, and I'm you know I'm not going to put you on the spot to explain it. I mean, I love to hear that shit because you know he very early on he said I got that out of the way right away, so that I could focus on. I identified these three things and wanted to do the opposite of what people lacked. In other words. He said the people that weren't getting out of there had no education, didn't know the law, and had no support. He said, I was going to get those three things. And I made that decision early, and I realized if I don't get respect to be able to focus on those three things, then I'm going to have to worry about violence the whole time and protecting myself. So just the contours, you could hear these words about people getting out, and I, I just that's why I think this is so important that people understand the contours of the suffering and and the, the practical considerations of survival that he had to go through. I mean, if you feel comfortable telling yeah. some of those stories, you should because I think it helps people understand like what you have to deal with just to stay alive, right? Just to fend off assaults, right? And uh, yeah, it's, it's so you had to get that out of the way. You had to make that a non-issue, right? You had to concentrate on your all all the things that you needed to concentrate on right. to get you out of jail. So, how did you manage to avoid all that violence? Uh, by uh, addressing it head on, you know, uh, and and. It, that became that because of who I am as a person. I'm just a very courageous type person. But the environment I, w- I was raised in, it, it it groomed you to be tough, right? Groom you to be tough. And you know, as as one thing, when I got there, I was saying, okay, uh, I'm a coming. I'm I'm a leave out just like I came in. I came in a man, uh, and I'm a leave out there like that. When it, it you know if if it's for me to get out of prison, I say I'm gonna leave out. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna keep my dignity and my pride, and I'm gonna stand up. Uh, so once I seen how uh, that was, then I I in in a situation that confronted me. Uh, in other words, it's like you bring me ignorance, I'm gonna bring you ignorance like you've never seen before, right? No matter how small I am, uh, how big you are, how many of them you are, if you you bring me bullshit, I'm gonna give you a cesspool. I'm gonna always go <laughs> higher than your ignorance, right? And 
having that mindset. So, you know, and have, I had some instance, uh, well, and like I said, I was a good boxer, I was a good fighter. Uh, and, you know, I had a mindset, because I understood boxing, it's like, you know, when I'm boxing, I, you know, if I'm in the rank, I can't hit below the belt, right? But if I'm fighting you on the street, I'm trying to win. I mean, I'm gonna bite your ass, I'm gonna poke your eyes out, I'm gonna I'm wrestle you, they ain't got no damn rules, I'm trying to win. And me having that mindset of, 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 of defending myself, uh, well, years later came to I had to use weapon, weapons. Uh, but so I had a mindset, and I had incident after incident until, uh, until guys realized that this guy he ain't to be fucked with, right? And he's not afraid, cause most guys are, are, are afraid. Like, if we, in other words, like. If me and you exchange words, and I'm gonna give you a primary example, like "fuck you," my "fuck you" is a is a is a physical confrontation. Your "fuck you" is a verbal, my physical confrontation. I'm always go higher than your ignorance, right? And me having that mindset, I protected myself to the extent of a lot of bullshit stayed around from around me. Not that guys fear me, but it's like if you were too much danger. Yeah, if you if you, you cross his with. yeah if you cross his pad, he gonna he gonna bring you the best. He he told me about he's the the second day he was in the parish jail. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, you tell it <laughs> because I said how quickly did you have to establish that? You know, well, you don't then, have to tell all the gritty details. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, or this, or you can this <laughs> being in. Uh, you know, the second day is just being in, in arrested for the sh- crimes and uh, charges. Uh, I had to, I went in a situation of like, okay, I'm going to be here. So I had to kind of like see how things was moving around. So it was a situation where the, the stronger stronger guys would get more food and the weaker guys would kind of get lesser food. And, and there's certain things that was happening, right? Uh, the stronger guys eat first and the weaker guys eat last. And I'm like, I ain't either one of these kind of guys, so I'm going to get my shit straight now. You know, so incident occurred. Uh, I was able to uh, manage to take care of my business in the sense of challenging one of the guys. Uh, and... Eventually, it 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 got to a level where guys had respected me from doing that because I was a newcomer that was coming into that, and I took it upon myself to actually challenge these guys and confront one of these guys and dominated the the, the situation to the extent where everybody started giving me a level of respect, you know, to the extent like, you know, he's a newcomer, but he ain't nothing. To... So I kind of like mimicked that same role, a concept when I got to Angola to establish myself first. And like I say, it, it occurred over the period of years, over the period of years, but eventually the shit just like starts smoothing out, you know? Even though it was still happening around me, all around me, guys was getting killed. Um, I, didn't, I didn't seen a lot of that stuff, you know? Guys, uh, you know, it's, it, it's horrible, you know? But I just was there and not there. 
because I was focused, man. I was trying to get out of prison. I know I ain't belong in there for number one. Uh, and I know what I had to do in order for to put myself in a position to win. How difficult was it to stay on track? You're in there for 24 years for something that you didn't do. Like, was it was it hard not to lose hope? Yeah, it's. I would. You it 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 always a, and, and and people can tell you this is as much as strongest strongest as people say I am and other people are. Uh, that's that that come from a wrongful conviction inside of the institution. And I think that's like one of the most two fear things that they say, and I can I, I I will agree with it that scientists and other people say that man is two worst fears of dying and being terminally ill, right? That's 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 too yeah. ill. Yeah. So me having all the hope and saying, man, I'm gonna get out of here. I'm gonna get out of here. Didn't really know how how that was gonna happen, but it's a it's a it's a level of fate that you gotta hold on to, right? And but somewhere in your back in your mind, because you you constantly seeing it every day, and 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 Angola guy has been now uh, incarcerated for so long that they die almost every day. A lot of people don't know that people die in that institution every day, and you seen this shit. They're dying of old age. They're dying from old, murder. Old old age. Old age. Old age. You know they've been there for so long. How how many people are in Angola locked up? More than five thousand. Right? They have their own TV station, radio station, magazine. Yeah, it's like a world. And you know, what what's um, what's hard to you know, and and the reason why the, I think that this is so important is because you have to transport yourself and allow yourself to go. You know, he sh- he gave the story short shrift. What happens is the second day he's in there. You know, the guys that are there for a a long time, they call him a new jack. And they he was first in line. He got out of his cell first, and he was ready to go get food. And he said he saw on the first day that what happened is they come out with loaves of bread. The guys that have been there for the longest take all the bread and leave the ends for the new jacks. So he was out of his cell and was the third in line. And one of the guys was like, you need to get your ass to the back of the line. And he was like, okay. (laughs) And he went to the back of the line. And then uh, when it came time to eat, the guy that put him to the back of the line didn't end up eating. He ended up on the floor. And to (laughs) to protect the details... You know, Robert put him on the floor right. as a way to say, okay, if you kick me to the back of the line, I'm not going to have words with you. I'm going to make you feel it so that no one's sending me to the back of the line because I'm going to eat like everybody else. Right. And that takes a level of ballsiness, I think. Yeah. And and to 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 also interject into the story, uh, yeah, and when he told me to get to the back of the line, I, actually I didn't go to the back of the line. Another guy allowed me to get like maybe three spots behind him because he was like, that's bull crap. Uh, but I already had it in my mind, like, I'm going to kick his ass. I'm going to kick Thank his God ass. Thank God you knew how to fight. Yeah, I'm going to kick his ass. Uh, that or either 
pick up something and, and use it as a weapon on him. Um, and eventually I did. Uh, took care of my business. I put his ass on the ground in a pool of blood. And I let everybody know on um, both sides, the tears of terror, that was maybe 56 people. I let everybody know on the pie that I ain't the one. And if you think I'm just talking or I'm, I'm just verbally just saying these things, if you just give me a fair chance and with each one of y'all that feel that way, and I kick everybody, I kick all y'all ass. And I wasn't, I mean, I, I know I can't beat everybody in the world, but I damn, I damn tried, right? So me doing that, that's what kind of like, hold up, man, this, this little guy here is something, something else, right? So eventually, start getting my little respect. I ate just like everybody else ate, uh, the ones who was doing what they was doing. And eventually, over the period of time, uh, uh, a lot of that stuff I got upset with because it wasn't right. I'm a fair person, right? So eventually, uh, I ended up taking a guy a job and, and what they call like tear reps, right? Uh, you're the rep for this these guys mm -hmm. and you know so I ended up getting into a competition with the guy took his position and from that point on I was in the parish I always maintained that kind of position that's being a representative for a lot of these guys because I'm a, and guys wanted me with that position because not that I was they know I wasn't side with the administration mm -hmm. right they know I'm a player fair across the board like the administration was to bring me a, a pan that I know that wasn't going to feed the 50 people, I'm going to slide that shit back out the door. I, we not eating, right? We going on ban. We going to ban. We not going to eat because I'm not going to take that and feed all these men. It's not enough food. And having that kind of, it, it just gave a lot of people a lot of respect for me uh, while I was there. Like I said, I still went through shit that everybody else go through by being in jail. So they gave you, like, they would give you a plan for how much food everybody would get? And then you would you would no, be able a, to negotiate with them? No, in the parish, in the parish jail, what happened was it, you know, like, if... Robert, try to talk into the microphone. Oh, just, just, pull it, just pull it up towards you. Or move right. your seat. Doesn't matter. Yeah, so what happened, what happens is they, if they give you a pan of uh, red beans, right, and a, a pan of rice, uh, and it may not be, it's not enough. They're supposed to have two pans, uh, and maybe two pans of rice or a pan to have a rice in order to feed that, in order for to give people amount of uh, amount of food that's going to make them full. Now it might be enough for somebody else to serve and give and skim guys on the tree, not giving them a lot of food, but I'm not going to accept that. To feed them guys, I'm not gonna do that. You might do that with somebody else. You're not gonna. So it was you were able to negotiate. You were able to get more food. Yes, every time, every time, uh, and guys respected me for that because I was able to, to play fair across the board on those different levels. There, you know, uh, and that's who I am. You know, I'm just a fair person. So how many years did it take you before you started to see the light at the end of the tunnel? How many years did it take you before you were able to get people to review your case and recognize you had been wrongly convicted? Uh, 
never thought about that. Uh, they, had, they had, you know, maybe after, uh, no, I, I can tell you this. This is what happens. And unbelievable. Uh, I got convicted in 1996. Um, I filed my first post-conviction as a, what they call, pro se litigant. litigant. I mean, I did it myself. And in the year 2000, I received the evidentiary hearing, which is a hearing without no attorney. Uh, and my issue was mainly was about the DNA testing. Uh, I was asking the courts to preserve uh, the testing, if there's any testing, that's, if there's any testing that's available to preserve the uh the DNA testing, so I can test it and prove my innocence. And I got granted evidentiary hearing for a motion I did. Well, unbeknownst to me, years later, that was the first ever of a motion that was granted on that capacity because they end up creating a law for the preserved DNA testing. That's way after I did this in two thousand in the year two thousand, right? I was like so ahead of time with this with this with this filing, uh, and I didn't even know it. Um, so from there, I ended up getting denied in the courts, uh, and this is a whole lot of it was a whole uh, chain of other things. But I maybe I think in two thousand ten. Or eleven that the Innocent Project of New Orleans came on board to bring their resources to 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 help me out, and even even after that, even after that, uh, I still was getting denials with them. Right, we still was getting denials. So, uh, and I tell I tell people all the time, it's like, you know, I throughout the course of twenty three years and seven months, I had sixteen denials from every court, from the lower courts to the middle courts to the highest courts. And let's think about what's happening here, by the way. What's happening here, just to put this into context, is that Robert is asking the court to order the prosecutors preserve the biological evidence from the crime scene. This was a rape and a murder. They had collected evidence and he is saying to them, please don't destroy the evidence because I want to prove my innocence. And I've talked to you about this before, about how prosecutors and state politicians fight this being made a law all over the country. And they come up with excuses like, well, then we're going to have a rash of people that want their evidence preserved and retested. There'll be a run on the courts. I mean, this seems to me to be a fundamental human right, okay, of somebody that's accused of a crime that on the strength of snitch testimony and hidden evidence, which we're going to get to what was hidden from him and his legal team in a minute, that he is fighting a seven-year battle, excuse me, a 14-year battle 
just to try to get somebody to help him get an order from the court to preserve the DNA. I would like to say that this is an anomaly and that this only happened in Robert's case. It happens in in way too many cases that I've handled and that the Innocence Project handles and the criminal justice reform organizations handle all over the country. So a lot of what we of what I get um, as a result of speaking out is how can I help? One of the ways you can help is, you know, your voice matters when you are voting for elected officials. Your voice matters when you are writing a letter to a governor. Your voice matters if you show up at a town hall meeting. It really does all matter. And we have to keep on pounding the, the um, beating the drum to make sure that fundamental rights like this, uh, laws to protect these rights are enacted. But I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that before I right. lost the thought. But, right. Because by the right. time the, New the, the Innocence Project of New Orleans comes along, and eventually um, Barry Sheck and, and my dear friend Nina Morrison, who are, you know, Barry is, but Nina's uh, uh, one of the, the leaders at the Innocence Project in New York. Um, she just got, you know, put forth as a potential federal judge pick. She'd be an amazing choice. Um, really started to take his case on and expose all of this evidence that was hidden. But prior to that, he was, you know, a one-legged man in a shit-kicking contest, to say the least. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's fighting this all on his own. But go go right. ahead. I don't want to. Yeah. And, well, not only did a lot of my pleadings uh, was about preserving the evidence, it was, it was also about all the withheld evidence and all the things that actually pointed to my innocence. So this one pleading, it was multiple pleadings that I was filed that I was filing throughout the like I, the span of time. So as I say, these sixteen denials came over the course of uh, the twenty three years and seven months. And trust me, each one of them denials felt like a guilty verdict all over again. Every one of them, right? Well, well, eventually they became numb. To like <laughs> this shit, it's it's all the same, right? Like one denial feel like the same, you know. Even though it hurt because you you've been to build yourself up to the extent like I like I'm doing all this amazing shit and re-educating myself. I'm doing all this great shit, but what the hell? I'm still not out of prison. And so when the Innocent Project of New Orleans was able to bring all the resources, we still was getting denial, still getting with denial. I'm like. God damn, I got the facts, I got the law on my side, like, what the hell? You know, and, you know, you you hold on to the hope, uh, but, you know, it's always in the back of your mind to go get, get back to this piece. It's always in the back of your mind, like, man, it's a possibility that I might die here, right? And something that you dread, you know, that's one of the worst things uh, for any person incarcerated, but especially, like, when you're innocent, like, it's a reasonable probability that I might die here. How many guys do you think you met in jail that were innocent that were probably going to die there? Uh, I met a lot of innocent guys uh, in there, but I also met a lot of guys who actually died, right? Because, like, in, in, in some instance when I was in prison, um, I used to work for this, this hospice program. Right, we deal with a lot of the, um, the elderly, uh, the, the, the terminally ill uh, uh, prisoners, 
over there on the hospital wall, in the hospital wall, right? You go to, you go over there and you care for them and you do these things for these guys. And a lot of those guys who, right before they die, like, you know, because I shared my story and let them know I was innocent, you know? And they're like, uh, it was in their right mind. It's like, Rob, I'm, I'm innocent, man. I'm innocent. And I'm like, not all of them, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't have that conversation with, with a lot of them. And I'm like, okay, uh, you got no reason to lie. You about to die, right? Yeah. There's no reason for him to lie, right? As, as, as nothing that can happen. And so I, I, I believed him. Right, so and and that was a it was quite a few of them that that came into the junction uh, of of expressing that they were innocent. I'm glad you're wearing that T-shirt. Um, the, the death penalty kills innocent people because um, I think there's a lot of people that have this sort of hard nosed idea that the death penalty is a good thing because uh, it kills people who do bad things, and it's very simplistic. But the problem with that is the legal system is very, very, very flawed, very flawed. So this idea that the 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 death penalty kills innocent people is is a very important idea, and it, it, people need to understand that for your in your your case your situation it's not unusual. This this story that you're telling it's unique and it's it's amazing that you went through it and that you you figured out a way to educate yourself and to get yourself out but there's not you're not an unusual case in that there's a lot of innocent people that get locked up that's right look at the back of my shirt those all innocent people who were killed those are all those are all innocent people that were convicted and sentenced to death and have since been exonerated right so Clemente Aguirre's on the back of this shirt you've heard his story yes. before and um you know, we're going to talk a little bit later about some cases of people that are still on, that are still on death row right now. Um, that there are strong, strong cases for innocence for them. And you know, you touched on something really important, which is that <clears throat> when you hear about a horrific crime, I think it's human nature. Eye for an eye. Yeah, yeah. And there's this really fascinating thing that happens during a death penalty case. The first phase of jury selection is called death qualification. It's a, a pretty shitty name for it. And it's this phase where you um, are there to gauge people's feelings about the death penalty. And having gone through jury selection and death penalty cases... It's, it's, it's rather fascinating sort of human experiment if you think about it because what the Supreme Court um, of the United States, not of any particular state, has said is that if a state is going to put someone to death, you have to have this process by which you cannot have people on the jury. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but you cannot have people on the jury that feel that if somebody is convicted – of a capital case and a capital crime that you will automatically vote for the death penalty. And you also can't have people on the jury that are so against the death penalty that they'll never vote for it. Now, during this process of gauging people's um, feelings about the death penalty, you get to have a conversation with them. And you can see the, the conflict 
the emotional tumult in their words and their body language um, in wrestling with, well, if somebody would, you know, murder a child or, you know, they deserve to die. But then you also, you know, see, but how, but unless I know 100% they did it, I don't know if it makes sense to hold that. And you see this wrestling, this existential wrestling going on. Then there are some people that come in and say, that's right. I'm definitely voting for death um, if, if I think they did it. Um, and, you know, it's fraught with so many problems because of the finality of it, right? And, you know, people have different philosophical beliefs. But if you knew the sheer number of people that, you know, Florida leads the nation in death row exonerations, mm-hmm. um, it's had, it would have put 30 people to death that were actually innocent that have been exonerated from Florida's death row. Over how, what period of time? Um, 30 or so years. So that would be, you know, one person, one person a year, um, innocent person killed on the death. So yeah, we all, we all, I think a lot of criminal justice reform is about, we live in a society that's so, if you're not this, you're that. You're right. either on this team or that team. It's a very binary. Simplified. Yeah, zero-sum game. Yeah. And, you know, I think human existence is far more complicated, and there are too many layers of gray areas that, you know, everybody should really stop and pump the brakes in their thought process and not be so wedded to how they were brought up or what their parents believe or what they think their friends believe and really take stock of, you know, what am I really about and what do I stand for? You know, I say often that I stand in awe of these exonerees. And even if, as I'm listening to it today, I'm hearing it and I know the story. But to know what, what Robert had to endure, um, it, it's just hard to imagine how a human being could get past it. I mean, he, he told me about the first time he saw people go for food in jail. And he said it was like a bunch of fucking savages you know, running after food and grabbing it and running away. He said, I thought it looked, to me, it was like, you know, I think what you said, it was like paralyzing to me because it was like, you know, I saw human beings in their most sort of um, primitive form. And he said, well, this is, this is different. <laughs> you know, I'm in a, I'm in a battle. Yeah. Robert, can you explain some of the, um, what you ended up finding out was hidden from you? What was the exculpatory evidence? Well, uh, they would they would held that. Uh, first of all, first of all, uh, maybe I can sp- explain the, the crimes. Right, there was a spree of crime that happened in the French quarters in New Orleans. Um, it was, I think, three armed robberies, uh, a rape and a kidnapping, and a murder was tied to that. So it, they it took all these crimes and said it was a part of a spree. All right, they had a um, a car that was involved uh, in the crime, and they eventually, over the period of well, over the 
couple of weeks after the crime happened, maybe. Um, they found out who the car um, that was involved. And during the time when they was doing the investigation, my name came up as a as the anonymous tip came in, right? So what they what they did was they eventually arrested me and connected me to the car that was actually using in in all these sprees of crime, including the 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 murder, the robbery, the kidnappings, and the rape. Uh, and years later, uh, it eventually found out that. Another guy got arrested for the murder uh, and was connected. He, in his possession, he had possessed jewelry and articles of evidence from each sp- crime spree. and From each of the victims. Yeah, he had jewelry the from the woman that was robbed. Right. He had clothing from one of the other women, I think the woman that was raped. Right. Um, and they never turned this over to him. Right. And so, yeah, they would they would held that um, from me. That was that that. How did they connect you with the car? That's that's, that's what I'm about to explain. They connected me to the car. How they connected me with the car? Uh, the the prosecutor theory was that, like when they arrested this guy, they got him to say that. Me and him was friends, and he he allowed me to use the car, right, at times uh, to commit the crime. But all the evidence suggested uh, differently. And so at trial, what they did was they charged, he got convicted of the actual murder, right? He got convicted of murder, and they separated him from the other crimes, and they charged me with the other crimes, right? But um, unbeknownst to me, uh, on the day of trial that I was uh, uh, for the rape, kidnapping, and the armed robberies, that uh, he told the prosecutor that I had nothing to do with none of the crimes, that he I never used a car, none of that, right? But when I went to trial, the prosecutor said something totally opposite. They prosecuted me on the theory that me and this guy was best friends. He allowed me to use Did the you car. know him? I didn't know him at all. Never seen him a day in my life. And the, the short answer to your question, Joe, about wh- what they had connecting him to the car, a driver's license. You would think a driver's license, a registration, insurance, someone that had seen them in the car. The answer is they had absolutely nothing. They had a word. They had the word of a guy that had been accused and tied to these murders, who was looking to put it on someone else. Well, how did he put it on you, though? He found out that there was a tip, right, implicating him, right, mm. right, absolutely. And, and so he tried to be a snitch to get the heat off of him absolutely. and put it on you, absolutely. And they let that happen. Yep. Even though they knew, right, and, and it goes deeper. This. Than that, uh, so after I get convicted, uh, I'm still charged with the with with the murder of the British tourist, right? I'm still, I'm still actually charged with it, even though I haven't been going back and forth to court with it at this time. After I get convicted, and I know I was going to get a life sentence for the rape, uh, the kidnapping, and three armed robbers, uh, 
so the district attorney uh, made an offer to my defense attorney uh, and eventually brought it to me on the day of my sentence and said that, okay, uh, we could give him 25 years, uh, 21 years for the murder, get him a manslaughter, right? And I don't know what type of stuff that happens out of my presence between my attorney and district attorney, but I was scared as shit. I just received a life sentence. Uh, I know I was about to get sentenced to life for the the rape and 25 or whatever, maybe 99 years for every own robbery. I don't know. I was scared to shit. So I took the 21-year plea, but I never admitted to anything, right? And a part of the evidence was that the guy uh, who we, we, we talking about that, that was initially trying to involve me, he was found guilty of the murder already. He was already found guilty of the murder. So they were trying you for a crime they already had convicted someone for. Absolutely. How, how is that possible? It happened. Because that what they were trying to say is that if two people are in a car and you're both out committing crimes, right? You're both responsible. You're both responsible. There's something called the felony murder rule. And the felony murder rule is that if you're in the commission of a crime and somebody dies, so if you and I went and robbed the bank and I go in and start, you know, shooting up the tellers and kill two tellers, you're responsible for the murder also. So the theory of Robert's prosecution was that they were friends, they were on this crime spree together, and that even though he was convicted of the murder, um, you know, he was still responsible and guilty of murder. It's no different than the James Daly case, which I've talked about before. They convicted one guy, Jack Piercy, and then they tried my client after that. One guy got sentenced to life. One guy got sentenced to death. It's crazy that they don't have to have any evidence whatsoever that you're even friends with that guy. Right, right. They and, had his word. Right. Isn't his word enough? And and <laughs> the, the, the piece of evidence, another article of evidence that were held is a report that uh, that when he made a statement, like the morning of my trial, as I said, that I didn't have anything to do with the murder. He never knew me and different things of that nature. Uh, and they withheld that. And they, and they withheld that. And that was so important to change the outcome of my, my trial because they, went, they took me to trial on the theory that we were friends and that I knew him and that I had a connection to him through the car. But had I would have had that piece of information, the the interject in my trial, I would have never probably got found guilty, to that extent. And they also would have held various different um, uh, uh, statements and evidence as it relates to the witnesses that was very inconsistent, that was very favorable to me, and that could have actually turned it back to the to the guy who was actually uh, 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 convicted of the murder. Uh, and attached to all those other spree of crimes, um, yeah. So it it just was a, a a lot of stuff, man, that they would held that that almost made it impossible um, for me to unravel and to uh, to obtain my freedom. And you know, I'd like to say that that's uncommon too, but it's not. So, in other words, when prosecutors are working on one theory, full steam ahead, right? And they then are met with, you might be wrong, we might have been wrong all along, 
the instinct 99 times out of 100 is to plow ahead and rationalize why the true perpetrator in Robert's case, why did he all of a sudden say Robert had nothing to do with it? Oh, well, maybe he is making this up because he feels guilty that he implicated his friend who really wasn't his friend. I've In Clemente Aguirre's case, which we've talked about and your listeners know about, the true killer confessed. She confessed over and over again to friends, to neighbors, drunk, not drunk, to police. In denying him post-conviction relief, now this is a judge, the judge chalked it up as survivor's guilt. So in other words, whether it's a prosecutor's judges, they'll make an excuse to protect the prosecution because it's all about winning or losing. Let's talk about that. What, what is that? Is that human nature? Is it like it, it, do people just want to confirm their initial suspicions and they rationalize all sorts of reasons why what they initially thought was right and this new evidence that shows that it's not right is wrong? Like what, what is it? Is it they don't they don't just don't want to be. They don't want to lose? I think it's a fundamental flaw um, that we have as human beings that I share. As a Taurus, I especially share it. How dare you bring up astrology? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I, um, I'm stubborn, but I think as I see this time and time again and, and watching juries deliberate because I do mock trials and focus groups or speaking to people post-verdict, but you can apply it. To politics, to anything. Could, to anything. To anything. I think a f- one fundamental flaw we have as mammals is our inability to be flexible in our reasoning. Mm. And I think that once we make a decision about something, it's very, very difficult to get people to reconsider. I see that in really intelligent people too, and it's, it makes me sad. It's maddening. Yeah. It's yeah. maddening. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Because it's like you aren't. Uh, the, the, the part of the problem, I think, with police, with prosecutors, with the, the whole legal system is that it becomes a game. And I don't mean a game like it's a joke. I mean a game like you're trying to win. Yes. And whenever someone is involved in something where they're trying to win, they do whatever the fuck they can. People cheat. They move golf balls, right? They, they do whatever the fuck they can. Don't look at Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever I, I watch hear, people moving those fucking things. Whenever I hear, <laughs> they do. They whenever I hear golf balls. Well, people cheat, man. They, they right. find ways to pretend that they didn't do something when they did it. They find ways to justify the things that they did do. They find ways to pa- pass the buck and put it on. If, if they can score that W... Right, and you see cops do it. They 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 plant evidence on someone they think was probably guilty, but they don't have enough evidence on them. They find rationalizations, and it's because there's a game going on. It's a win or lose, and it becomes a real problem. And not only that, with a lot of cops, there's quotas. Like you literally have to arrest a certain amount of people, right? Which is insanity. Like what the fuck do they do if no one commits a crime? What do they do if no one speeds? If you have a quota where you have to arrest 100 people for speeding, what the fuck do you do if everybody makes an agreement, we all get on Facebook and we say, hey, let everybody drive the fucking speed limit for the next 60 days and let's crush the legal system because these cops have to, they have to make a certain amount of pullovers. They have to pull a certain amount of people over and write a certain amount of tickets. They have quotas. If you don't meet those quotas, they get in trouble. So what the fuck kind of game is that? Right. I, I would say... Uh, uh, 
a lot a lot of that a lot of just like we have structural racism right and what when I say structural racism I mean like institutional uh uh things that set up through uh regulation rules and policies like redlining right uh and you just have like uh flawedness in a variety of different systems they got people that work for company they got a lot of flawlessness and they don't really they don't really understand that you're employed in a system that 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 treat people unfair cause people home and you can't even see it and some people can be a part of a system or a part of a program or a part of an organization that uh have that win mentality right that win 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 by all cause mentality and they lose their empathy for people right and and when people lose their empathy, when you know when we define those things, and a lot of people don't like uh, to hear hear this this type of shit. But when you lose your empathy for people, you become technically a sociopath. That's a real problem with corporations. That, that's like a thing that they say about corporations. That corporations, technically, if you look at the actions, behavior of corporations, particularly ones that cause harm to the environment or to people or sell products they know are dangerous and harmful and hide the evidence that they're acting like sociopaths. Absolutely. And there's a term called a diffusion of responsibility. And diffusion of responsibility happens if you have like a large group of people. Like here's the 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 the, the term applies to if you're standing around, there's 100 people in this group, and you watch some guy beating the shit out of somebody, you don't step in because you feel like it's not my fault. It's not, I'm not responsible. There's so many people here. But if it's just you and one guy beating the shit out of someone, then you feel responsible because no one else is there to help. Right. But it, the, the large number of people you would think would stop someone from doing something, like a corporation. Like, there's so many people. How could this corporation, uh, how could they act in such an unethical way that they know is harmful to a community, polluting rivers, or harmful to the, the people that they're selling these products to? There's so many people. Surely someone's going to tell. But it's actually easier for them to get away with it, which is how pharmaceutical companies operate. It's easier for them to get away with it if it's an enormous amount of people because there is a diffusion of responsibility and there's an overall commitment to keep the profits going for the greater good of the corporation. And there's no accountability. No accountability. Well, and exactly. you, we've stumbled on something very magical here in this moment. I'll tell you why. By it's no different with a corporation than it is with prosecutors and detectives. And I'm going to tell you why. My theory, at least. My humble perspective on this is that when you're a prosecutor or a corporation, a case um, or a person, whether they're taking a drug or buying your product, is just a, a, a number on a sheet and a name on a sheet, on, on, in a spreadsheet or in a program. And what they lack, and when talking about lack of empathy, is that they lack the ability, partly because of how they're positioned, to be positioned practically, in other words, to be able to sit down with the, with the person accused and, and hear from them. They're in a position where they, they are told they have to win or in a corporation's, uh, in the case of a corporation, make money and increase profitability. But I think it's the same flavor, which is that the lack of human interaction and being able to understand with prosecutors the human toll that is left in the wake of these prosecutions. I cannot tell you, Joe, how many former 
state prosecutors, federal prosecutors, federal judges who are now criminal defense attorneys have moments where they break down emotionally and and go through years of regret <sighs> about how callous they were um, and how how much they lack sensitivity. And some of them, and realize sort of, I don't know if it's so much the error of their ways, but you know, I know, um, and he doesn't fall into any of those categories. I know a former federal judge, I don't even want to name him, who is doing, who is a former federal judge, who is a former prosecutor. I've become very, very close with him in New York. And he is doing unbelievable things now um, through a project where he is trying to get clemency for people that were disproportionately sentenced. And he is moving mountains to do it. And I think some of it is because he feels a sense of obligation. Because in some instances, he was forced to sentence people because of sentencing guidelines disproportionately. I think some of, some of it is a change in perspective. And if we could figure out a way, like I have a theory that it's lack of training. It's the lack of you know, a, a system whereby prosecutors can really sit down with a criminal defendant, the accused, and their attorneys and get to know them and understand how damaging this all is. Mm. Because just getting accused of a crime, even if you get acquitted, it's life ruining. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen in white collar crimes, certainly in crimes where you're, you know, accused of some violent offense. So I think we've, you've put your finger on something remarkably relevant. And if, if we could somehow get across to people in law enforcement, prosecutors, I have someone that's an expert in a, in a civil rights case right now who was a, a former warden at a prison in Florida and at a place where they used to execute people. And he's come to the other side and, and could, cannot believe that he was ever, you know, in a position where he was taking lives and realizes how many mistakes are made. So oftentimes it takes them sort of coming to the other side, having interaction with someone like Robert and seeing the empathy because what he's been able to accomplish in the five short years since he's been out and reforming the system is nothing short of remarkable. To me, it's both a happy ending and it's, it's you know, terribly depressing because look what they, look what they wasted on taking him through this. And we were talking about on the way over here whether or not he ever would have become the force that he's become in, in criminal justice reform if this all didn't happen to him. So maybe that's the silver lining. Easy for me to say because I wasn't the one, you know, toiling in a, in a terrible penitentiary for 23-plus years. It's a, It's a horrible thing that people get a thought in their head and then try to confirm it. Right, like this guy's guilty, and then you do your best to try to confirm it instead of looking at it objectively and trying to figure out if you're right or wrong. Right. Well, that, that's called confirmation bias. Yeah, and it's right. a very real thing. It's a very right. real thing, and right. that these prosecutors, uh, they're they they're not held accountable for bad mistakes. That's what's crazy. I could tell you another. Not just mistakes, but exon. I mean, holding back evidence that would exonerate someone. Right. I could tell you another ticker in this thing. Another thing that they kind of would have. Uh, and this was very important. Um, the detective, that the detective, Detective Stewart, and I, and I, I can say that's a he an honorable person, and I, I have a lot of respect for him. 
Because what 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 ended up happening is Detective Stewart was the detective that's on. He was the the head uh, detective on the homicide, and his job when he did his 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 investigation was for the murder, and he determined from his own investigation and investigation of uh, 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 teams that he worked it with that the the Spreer crimes as well as the homicides were all tied into one person who committed the crime. And that was the person who uh, was convicted uh, of the murder. So in other words, he did that and he told the prosecutor that he had the wrong man. That was the first time he ever did it in over 20-something years of him being a, a, a police. He told the prosecutor that, because he was the one that made the arrest on me, and he felt so bad uh, when... The Innocent Project of New Orleans uh, reached out to him and said, hey, do you remember the Robert Jones case? He said, yes, I, I do remember the Robert Jones case. He was saying, uh, hey, how you doing? He's out, huh? He said, hell no, he's not out. He's in prison. Well, how he was in prison? I told the district attorney that we had the wrong guy. And he was his mind was blown. Uh, when, I, when I met him at court, that going through my hearing process, you know, he brought his wife. He met me in court because he went from New Orleans, detective in New Orleans, uh, to working for the FBI, uh, to working in various high-level places. And this man was blown away. He was like, I thought that cleared that guy up, that case for this guy years ago. He felt so bad and he felt so relieved when I got out of prison. Uh, uh, it, 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 it was crazy. For the prosecutor to have all this kind of information in their and in, in, in their pocket and and to withhold that information. Now, knowing what we know now, now that you are exonerated, that you are out, what are the repercussions? Did they have to compensate you? Does anything happen to them? The people that withheld that evidence are they? Conti- did they continue to work? Are they punished? That's a timely question, huh? <laughs> What's going I think, on? I think you can like ask that. Well, no, you should answer it. I mean, Robert just agreed. He filed a federal civil rights claim, which is for monetary damages. Um, in term, Let me answer the first part of it first. Okay. The people that did this to Robert were not held accountable. Criminally, they were not held accountable in any way, and that's a huge problem. Robert just um, it, it made headlines in our world quite a bit. Um, he was compensated. Um, it wasn't nearly enough. In fact, it was it was an amount that I find um, tragic relative to his experience. But it took a lot of it took a change in in leadership in New Orleans. The new district attorney there is a gentleman by the name of Jason Williams, who's a remarkable guy, a former defense lawyer, who just became district attorney and and knew that Robert needed to be compensated. Um, but he wasn't compensated nearly enough. He did 24 years. And how do you put a number on that, on 24 years of lost life? Robert's 48 today, right? He spent half his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. You know, and he got, I mean, it was public, right, the amount? Yeah. $2 million? Right. Now, the, I know intimately well, you know, what Robert has been through. I, I don't. I can't empathize. I can sympathize. I can't empathize because I didn't go through it. But I've seen how he's struggled financially since he's been out, 
And how do you pick up the pieces of, of a lost life? Um, you know, I once heard a, a civil rights attorney ask for $36 million in a, um, in a case where two guys were both spent 18 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And he said it, and, and it brought me to tears. I was his co-counsel in the case, but I'll give him the credit because it was a remarkable line. He said, $36 million, a lot of money, ladies and gentlemen. That's not nearly enough. So he was compensated, but um, is it enough? I don't know. You know, I don't, um, unless you sit in a prison cell and know what it's like for a day, a week, a month, and, you know, your lifetime starts passing by, it's hard to put a dollar value on Well, here's it. a good way to judge it. Ask any of those people that wrongfully put him in prison if they'd be willing to go to prison for 24 years for $2 million. Yeah. I guarantee you none of them would say yes. It's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough. It's a enough. lot of money for a regular person to consider, like, oh, my God, $2 million. It's not enough for 24 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of your listeners have reached out to me uh, asking, what can I do? There's a lot of states in, in this country right now and you know we can provide you with the information to put in the notes of the episode that have limits or no compensation right. for people that were wrongfully incarcerated. That's crazy. And that's a big reform effort um, that not only the Innocence Project um, has undertaken, but people all over the country in criminal justice reform organizations that there should be minimum amounts set. And they, they jump through trap doors all the time. Watch what happens in Florida. In Clemente Aguirre's case, the state of Florida owes him a lot of money for his wrongful incarceration. And there is a statute in the state of Florida to show you how fraught this is. And so he applied for the compensation after his exoneration. And what the state of Florida did was they said, you know what? The statute of limitations has passed because when we overturned the verdict— when the state overturned the verdict in 2017, whatever it was, he went from being incarcerated to being in custody. And what the statute says is that you have to file within whatever the, lim the whatever the time frame was, two years from being from from being released from incarceration. So the state's argument was that, well, when the Supreme Court threw out his conviction, the same day, the same day that the Supreme Court unanimously reversed his conviction, the state announced we are retrying him. Nobody came to Clemente Aguirre's cell and said, by the way, you're no longer incarcerated. You're just in custody now, just so you know. All right. So what they would have you think is that, or have the court think, is that at that moment when his conviction is thrown out and they say, we're going to try you again and try to put you to death, that you should have filed the wrongful compensation claim when you're trying to save your own life and get out of this mess yet again. So they jumped through this trap door. And the, the judge, who was a, a magnificent man, his name is Judge John Galuzzo, who I credit with saving Clemente's life because in his retrial, he let the jury selection process play out like it should. 
And he at one point said to the prosecutors, you know, what you think is the truth may not be the truth after all. And he let me put the real killer on the stand because I was afraid she was going to leave town as a material witness to preserve her testimony. And she all but confessed on the stand and the state dropped the case. He wrote an opinion denying Clemente post-conviction relief and apologized essentially in the conviction. And he said that basically the Florida legislator wrote this statute in a way that ties my hands because he wasn't incarcerated anymore. He was in custody awaiting trial. So even when you get these laws on the books, it's like, you know, your mind starts to spin. Like, where does the, the fuckery end? So that's why, you know, you know, the way that Robert has not only, and he should tell the story of how he finally got out, and and but he, you know. Can you tell me what's happening with Clemente, though? Before we do that? Yeah. So Clemente right now is, I'm in the process of representing him in his uh, federal civil rights case. Um, I can't talk too much about it because there's a law or there's a rule about not speaking out. But we are holding the people accountable civilly. I was able to, I've taken some of the depositions so far. And um, we're, you know, excited to be able to get him some measure of compensation. But... um, he is, you know, he's in a tough place. He's he's here. He can't work. Um, he's in immigration limbo, um, and he is doing the best he can, you know, to survive. And hopefully, the civil rights case works out. I have a great team of people working. You know, how long does something like that usually take? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the wheels of justice grind slow in getting both exonerated Absolutely. and compensated. I mean, the case has been going on for a couple of years or right. a year and a half. It'll probably go on for a couple of more. And then, you know, there's more hoops to jump through to finally get them to write the check. They can appeal. And sometimes it can drag on for many, many years. Absolutely. Yeah. Robert, what are you doing with your time these days? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh well, I'm doing a lot. Uh, right now, right now, I'm, um, I'm currently the, the director um, of community outreach and lead organizing client advocate for Orleans Public Defender's Office. Uh, and that's uh, public defenders, as you know, is, is attorneys who represent uh, people who can't afford attorneys, generally poor people. Uh, I work in that office and. Uh, so I kind of like work in the same criminal justice system or the same court system that actually uh, sent me to prison. Wow! You know, and, and it was it was more in terms of like uh, like when I when I got the job and I sort of worked my way into a position because um, some of the things I used to tell guys like when I was in prison. Uh, anticipating getting out. When I started seeing things was going to work, I was like, okay, increasing my hope I was going to get out. I used to tell guys in prison, because uh, I was an inmate counsel when I was in prison, right? I used to tell guys that one day uh, you're going you're to see me come back inside the prison in suit and tie. And I'm not going to be a prisoner. So I had that experience like several times. Uh, I have more than like 50-something clients in Angola. While wow. I was, Houses. So I actually walked back into the same prison that I was actually housed in. It was, With a suit and a tie. It was a great feeling, right? <laughs> uh, so 
and I, I I take that I share that same uh, uh, level of inspiration and uh, gratitude when I go back in the same courtrooms that I was actually uh, prosecuted in, uh, just a court building, and able to uh, to establish uh, a working relationship, a, a, a respectful relationship with a lot of the judges. And now that we have a new district attorney, and they district attorney, so we have a a, a, a a beautiful working relationship and understanding uh, both aspects of of the criminal justice system from a you know from the prosecutor perspective, from a defense perspective, uh, which all surround fairness to me, right, and justice. Uh, so I see it. So. Uh, I do that. I run a nonprofit organization uh, that mentor the youth, uh, that sort of like to help them make a transition from childhood to adulthood, which is a is 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 a huge thing for a lot of the youth. I'm um, called Freedom Foundations, and I'll give you information where people can actually go and check it out. Uh, me and another guy who was formerly incarcerated, who also is a designeree. Um you know, I do some public speaking in different um, places and uh, help change different laws. And because of the position I am, um, I have a lot of influence in the community. Um, amongst a lot of our state representatives, uh, city councilmen, uh, and I, I sit on a lot of boards and, and committees for the city of New Orleans. So I have a lot of influence and a lot of respect in the city of New Orleans, not just because of my experience, because of my skill set. Um, of of bringing everybody on one accord, not not being afraid to speak truth to power, and which a lot of people don't like me for it, but they respect me for it uh, as well. Um, and yeah, so that that's what I'm doing, you know. And um, and we can get we can get off into it later, but it's, it's another book that I'm writing. And it's going to kind of tie everything in, you know, and because of your platform and what you're doing to uplift the voice of people who have been in, in these type of situations and also to uh, uh, to affect change. And that's one of the reasons why I respect your, your podcast and what you do and people that's in your position, like people like, because uh, I can go on and on about this guy, uh, Joss and Jason, uh, how they use their position to help people. And I'm going to be really asking for your help to push this book that I'm about to do because I I, I, I want to be on a platform, right? I want to create my own platform of fairness and, and, and using the influence I have to expand these type of things and to, to change the concept, you know, change the mindset of a lot of people, man, because they need more people like yourself. You know, at using their platforms to, to, uh, to change things, man. To to break this system that we have uh, that's that's destroying people. I think there's a problem in that a lot of people have no idea how the system works until they get entrapped by it. Absolutely. So Absolutely. there's a lot of people that until they hear a story like yours or some of the other stories that Josh and Jason have, have brought to us. And explained and, and until you see the horrific details of it there's a lot of people that just don't know how these things work and they assumed like you assumed when you got arrested that innocent people don't go to jail for crimes they didn't commit and then having a, a person like yourself who can explain what happened to you and all the horrific details 
when we have a few of these conversations, then people realize like, oh, this system is fucked up. And then Absolutely. when Josh can explain just this human nature that's involved in this confirmation bias and then trying to confirm your initial suspicions and ignore all evidence to the contrary and all that this is some sort of a weird flaw in human nature, we'll get these conversations going and people can sort of have a different perspective so when they hear about someone getting convicted or they hear about someone getting arrested, instead of just immediately assuming that they're guilty, instead it's going to bring up a conversation like, this is a flawed system, a very flawed system in so many different ways. And now to that, if I, if I may interject, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people look at uh, the individual that, that have been impacted, like myself, right, uh, by the system. But... Wrongful convictions of putting people through the system is it's beyond me. This stuff impacts the lives of, of, of family members, your children, your mother. It changes a lot of things. It's a lot of things that I experienced inside of prison of losing family members, losing relationships, losing connections with family members, and have to, to be released out of prison to rebuild those relationships, right? To rebuild those relationships, some relationships I had to cut off, some relationship uh, that just got lost and don't know how, and try to mend a lot of those things. But uh, and in my in my state, the state of Louisiana, uh, as you said, yes, I have been. In the, you know how many years it took for me to actually get to this point of being compensated to to extent. I had to fight for that, right? In my state, the state of Louisiana, they have a compensation law. Uh, it was 25000 for a cap of 10 years. So no matter how many years you stayed in prison, it was 25000 per year that you stayed in. That's in, crazy. Yes. That is fucking crazy. Now, they increased it to 40000 right? Whatever. <laughs> Still crazy. What a 10-year ten, a ten cap. And Give it, someone a year in jail. Tell them, like, for every year in jail, right. you get to keep $40,000. Who the right. fuck is going to say yes to that? Right. So, and we have been, and that's a part of my reform work and working with the Instant Project New Orleans and a variety of other uh, organizations and working with uh, state legislators to, to keep on fighting for that change, right? That's some of the things that I, I also uh, participate in. But uh, the thing is, even, even in that conversation, you still got to fight for that. It's not automatically given to them. And I, I like to fully dispel the the, uh, the myth that when a lot of guys get out of prison and get exonerated, that a big fact check is waiting on them and they're going to ride off into the sunset. We need to dispel that. People need to get that out of their mind. That don't happen because <laughs> when, when, when I came home, uh, I didn't have jack nothing, right, outside of of, of – the Innocent Project of New Orleans and the Innocent Project in New York uh, helping me uh, financially. And this this guy and Jason Flum, like, you know, and, man, if I wouldn't have had that, I don't know what type of situations that I would be in right now, you know, because uh, I eventually got a job. It wasn't paying much of nothing, but it was a job, right? Uh I worked there, um, and I got good at what I do. I work at a meal shop. Um, I respect that uh, the, the owner uh, so much for giving me the opportunity because I learned a lot there, and I was able to um, to build myself into the capacity of of, of where I'm working now. Uh, 
But financially, morally, uh, to surround myself with guys like Josh and Jason Flum is is huge because, you know, uh, these guys have platforms. They're famous, right? You don't like to call it so that. I mean, you know a lot of people. You, you're you in position. Uh, and, I mean, to be real friends with these guys and the and allow me uh, the opportunity and, and, and don't look at you like, you know, just because they may be at a certain level, that's why I respect about them because they're going to see you equal. You know what I mean? And and I will not only assume, but just maybe doing my own research on y'all, I will uh, presume you are the same way. You know, to have that type, that type of humility for for people that maybe have been in and bad circumstances, a situation that you may haven't been in, but you still to be able to look a person in the eye and extend uh, uh, the opportunity uh, uh, for that person is, is huge to me. That's, that's that's real humanity, you know what I mean? Because it's like he don't have to do what he have to do. Jason Flum don't have to do what he have to do. I mean, you don't have to do what you have to do. You don't have to raise your voice about certain things, but to to do that, it's huge to me. You know what I mean? That's, that's that's really huge, and that's real. That's humankind, because most people, we all human, but some people don't act like human. People, th- they think about their own problems, you know, yeah. and everybody's got their own problems. It's easy to ignore other people's problems. Absolutely. Here's the, here's the point. You know, when we, and, and Robert and I, have the opportunity to speak to lawmakers that are have different political views, this type of conversation is extraordinarily rare. I spoke to the governor of Florida about the James Daly case. He literally has a, a, a snapshot view of it, gave me less than 35 seconds after having me wait for several hours to meet with him. And is un, there's a clemency mechanism in the state of Florida. All that means is that you listen. You just listen. You can deny it. You can say, sorry, not granting you it. But what point is there in having it if you're not going to listen? And the problem is that, you know, like Julius Jones is about to be executed in Oklahoma. Uh, Richard Glossop is sitting on Oklahoma's death row, stone cold innocent. And, you know, these it becomes a political thing with protecting the the um, the win. You know, we talked about this herd, this this tribal tribal mentality. Now you got me on herd herd immunity, tribal mentality. And it becomes, you know, rather than just sitting and having the conversation and listen and being able to break through and saying, okay, I've heard you now hear me, hear what I have to say about the reasons why you might want to, you know, did you hesitate at all? If you hesitated a little bit, are you sure you want to take a life? You know, and that in the case of Robert and so many others, it took, it took an army of people. It's really easy to throw someone in jail. It took a literal army of people fighting and clawing and kicking and scratching to get him out. And why I think he's such an extraordinary story is that, you know, to be able to get out and now basically create a position for himself at the public defender's office, um, it's a miracle to get out in the first place. It's more of a miracle to find the, I mean, to find the the sort of emotional, physical fortitude to want to stay in the system that imprisoned you a lot of people that get exonerated run, and they have every reason to. 
California, Florida, the Midwest. Just get the fuck away. Just get the fuck away. Yeah. They don't want to see their lawyers again. They send them a postcard. Right. <laughs> right? Well, Robert, what you bring to this is uh, you have a peace and composure about you that's very unusual. You know, because of the horrific, horrific thing that you went through, and to to have to educate yourself about law and to try to figure out your case while you're locked up in a jail dealing with all the other stresses of that environment you have a composure about you like you have a you have a character that's literally built under fire i mean you you were forged under horrible conditions and because of that you are uniquely uniquely qualified to discuss this and to to have these kind of conversations and to open people's eyes because of who you are and how you've gone through it and who you what kind of man you are now and the way you can describe it so calmly and serenely which is so it's very impressive most people who would have gone through what you've gone through would be a a broken husk of a person after all those years but you're not but you're not and and the fact that you continue to help and work with the innocence project and and try, try to help people and actually go do what you said go back to angola with a suit on and help people right absolutely it's an amazing thing. It's right. an amazing thing. And you, you've you literally turned, I mean, there, there's no way to completely turn that negative into a positive, but you've made the most out of it for sure. Right. Uh, that's sort of like my motto, you know, um, in the sense of turning all my negatives. Everything that, 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 that happened bad in my life, I try to make it out of positive for, for the most part. Uh, from, and working at the uh, public defender's office, I also... Uh, was in charge of, along with two attorneys that I work with. Like currently, right now, we created like a resentencing program about a new law that changed. And currently, we, I was a part of a team that uh, maybe 60, 60 guys that got out of prison, helped 60 guys that got out of prison. It And, and it's not about, it, it. it's a joy to me in the sense uh, of, of, Seeing those guys get out of being re- reunited with their family, guys who maybe really thought they would never get out of prison, to 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 have that type of thing is is, uh, I mean it's just a joy. It's it's, it's a thing, uh, and because of my experience and because of the education I have about the system, not just the criminal justice system, about the entire system, because that's what I studied, right. Me understand that it's hard to stay inside. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like if you was a doctor that 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 knew a cure uh, or something that'll bring someone relief from pain, and you see this person in pain, you just like uh, you know how to help them, but you don't don't do it. That's that's, that's in a sense of, that's what it is to me. You know, me having educated myself and, and put myself in position. It's hard for me to stay inside. There's no way I can have a knowledge of these things and not help someone. I mean, I wouldn't be a, 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 the, the person who I am. That speaks to your character. It's a, I, Absolutely. It's, it's very inspiring. It's very inspiring, I'm sure, yeah. to other people that are listening to this, too. Right, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's sort of like bring me to the point if it's one of the things that, uh, outside the things that I do and the relationship I build inside the community and... Uh, like I said, I, I'm, I'm working towards this, this this book I'm working towards is is power of endurance. And you're writing it right now? 
It's almost complete, yes. When do you think it'll be done? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe two more weeks. I should have it all edited out. Do you have a publisher already? Um, you can help me with it. We'll, we'll do what, what we can. All we'll right. do what we can to get it out there for all sure. Right. And we'll do what we can to promote it once it's actually for ab- sale. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's dealing with the power of endurance. And I and the book came about because uh, I get this question all the time. Like people always ask me, like, Robert, how the hell can you do it? How you can keep your composure? How you can do these things? Uh, how you can be grew up in, in, in distressed neighborhoods all your life, poor, come from single-parent household, uneducated, to all this, how you do these things is still not wearing the pandemic, you're not scared, you're not afraid, you know, like, man, how you keep a smile on your face? And I used to always joke, I'd say, one time, one day I'm going to put it in the book, I'm going to show you how. And I created, like, well, it's four easy steps, and, and I actually tell them, like, through my own experience, and, and how I was able to maintain uh, a build a, a, a tough mentality. And me and Josh were talking about it last night, and I think that what I want to do uh, is sort of different from people with, that inspire people, like motivational speakers. Uh, got a million of them, right? Uh, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm a transformative speaker, right? It's like... Because anybody or anything can basically inspire you. Like, I can inspire you right now. You can leave out of here. And soon you face adversity, it's like a deflated bloom. That inspiration leaves. Right. But if you've got a tough mentality, I can maintain, I can teach you how to maintain your inspiration. Right? How when you face difficulties that you're able to overcome. You can still keep your inspiration and keep on striving. Well, the difference is also you're coming from a place that you've actually had to overcome something absolutely horrific. Whereas That's right. There's, a, there's a lot of people that are what you would call motivational speakers, but if you try to find the actual adversity that they had to overcome, like where, what are they doing? Well, they're taking advantage of a thing that people desire. They desire external motivation. They desire people that have said, that say something to them that gets them fired up. And there's benefit in that. I'm not knocking it. But there's a big difference between that kind of motivation and the kind of motivation that someone like you could bring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we wrap this up? Sure. All right. Um, Let us know when your book comes out. We'll definitely let the world know. And uh, we'll try to get you in touch with publishers. And I'm sure Josh can help with that, too. And um, anything else on your end? No, I just – I know that I've – do this as much as I can, but I want to thank you for giving us this platform. Um, you know, I, I'm eternally grateful to you for your your humility, your empathy, your compassion, because if we don't get these stories told and make people realize that this is not a political thing, this is not anything but a human thing, and, you know, all it really takes is being able to sit down and realize that you're dealing with a person of of mind, body, and flesh, and that you know they're worthy of of being listened to, and certainly of redemption. And I think Robert's just a living, breathing example of of the miracles that can happen when people come together to try to help. I think it's important to uh, have as many of these people on as we can, whether it's uh, as many cases that you could describe when you come on or have people like Robert come on and talk about this. So people 
can get a, a more nuanced understanding of what's actually going on. That these this is these aren't this isn't some fucking thing that you know may or may not exist. This is a real human being. They're right in front of you right now, and they're telling you their story, and it's real. Right. And there's DNA evidence, and there's evidence that the prosecutors withheld evidence, and there's evidence that you were you were innocent the entire time and that they knew it. This you know, is this is important. Yeah, I'll say this in closing. I can't. That's why we're so grateful that we're like, you know, we can't express it enough because we have seen the difference that it's already making. Thousands of emails, Instagram messages of people that are are writing to me and Jason. You know, you've changed my path in life. I want to now become a criminal defense attorney. I want to become a legislator and enact new laws. You know, this, the the amazing reach of this podcast has been transformative. Talk about transformative speakers. It's been transformative in, in our approach to this. And if we didn't have this platform through you, it wouldn't be possible. So you have, uh, you know, my eternal thanks. Well, you have my eternal thanks for your hard work. And what but, you've done is exceptional and extraordinary and selfless and humbling. And I think, you know, I... As a friend, I'm I'm honored to be your friend. Well, I think I feel I think, the same way. I think I, what you do absolutely. is amazing. And thank you, Robert, for coming on here and, and telling your story. And I, I think I think these stories make a difference. And I, I think you know having people on here to discuss these things. I think it can make a difference. Thank you, well, brother. Thank you. Thank I you thank, all. Uh, thank you. Thank you for uh, right. giving me the opportunity for to uh, share my story and um, hopefully. To build from it, you know, to yes. build from it and continue on to uh, reach out to, to folks and, and allow people to have that conversation, allow them to see different perspectives. Sometimes that we can grow up with if it's an uh, a ideology or perception that's passed down from our family and from friends and uh, just uh, our own experiences. And to keep our mind closed, right, to the real perspectives of life. So I just thank you for giving us this opportunity, and I think that um, – it's gonna change some people's lives. It's gonna inspire some folks. Uh, start looking at things differently, you know, so. I think so. Thank you. All right, thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.